You'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we continue on in the book of Nehemiah. And today, we conclude chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 13. If you remember from last week, the people had gathered to hear from the book of the law and asked that Ezra would read it to them. And that was the first day of the seventh month. And so now we go on to read about the very next day, the second day. And we begin reading in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booth. For from the day of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Perhaps you have faced the question from friends or family, or perhaps you've thought of it yourself. Why to go to church? Why would you go to church? Surely you can read the Bible at home or you can have a personal relationship with the Lord. You don't need the church. Well, I say to that, well, you can and should be reading your Bible at home and you can get much from it. And likewise, we are to have a personal relationship with the Lord. But there is something that takes place in the reading and preaching of God's word, in the context of the corporate worship, that is unlike anything on earth. The word of God takes a whole different dynamic, an impact that is unlike anything or anywhere else. When a passage that you have heard or even read many times seems to lift off the page and becomes alive and has an impact on you like it has never had before. When these words in black and white become full color and they make an imprint upon your hearts and upon your mind and they change the way that you think and the way that you live. When parts of the Bible that you think can have absolutely no relevance upon your life hits home and you leave saying, that is exactly what I needed to hear today. It's so practical and so applicable to our lives in the 21st century. Perhaps you've had that experience, and I pray that it has been such, with the reading and preaching ministry of this church, and in particular of this pulpit, with particular scripture passages from this book, the book of Holy Scripture. In fact, I had one of you say to me recently, 
I didn't know much about the book of Nehemiah before this series, but now it's become one of my favorite books. Praise God for that. And the question that we should ask is, how is that possible? How can a book like this one from the Old Testament that was written 2,500 years ago about people on the opposite side of the earth, a world quite different from ours, be relevant to us as Americans in the 21st century? Well, it is not the preaching per se, and surely not the preacher. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who is pleased to use the reading and preaching of His Word for His purpose and for His glory. Let me make it very clear to you. It is a spiritual experience when the book, the holy book, God's Scripture is opened to us. When we absolutely believe that the Spirit is at work, and he's at work in the way that he said he would be, namely in spirit and in truth, to bring into remembrance all that Jesus has taught, because the Spirit's role is not to make much of us, far from it, to make much of Christ, and to make much of his word. That is why our forefathers, who are writing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as we confessed earlier, had that question and answer. How is this word made effectual to salvation? Notice the answer. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and in comfort through faith unto salvation. That is why I said last week the primary purpose of the church is to worship And the largest portion of the worship service is the reading and the preaching of God's word. Why do we do that? Well, because of what this catechism says, because we believe it's effectual. It's effectual unto salvation in convicting and in converting and in building up the saints. If you want to know how we fulfill our purpose to know and to grow and to show forth the love of Christ, it cannot happen apart from the reading and preaching of God's word. And I think this passage before us demonstrates that so practically. And that's what we want to look at this morning in four points. The reaction, the affection, the connection, and the application of the reading and preaching of God's Word. First, the reaction to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Like I said, if you were with us last week, We saw that on the first day of the seventh month, the people gathered. Having secured their freedom, they want to gather together to hear from the book of the law. They want to hear from the Bible. And so they tell Ezra to bring the book. And that being a preacher's dream, he readily complies. He reads the book of the law from early morning to midday. For about five to six hours. And not only was there reading, but there was explanation of it. There was reading and there was preaching. And what happens? What took place? Well, the people react, don't they? And they respond rightly. And they didn't respond with, that's great, Ezra. 
Now, what's for lunch? No, there was radical transformation. You see it in verse 5 as he opens the book and he read from it, and all the people stood. It says in verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. What is the first reaction to the reading of God's word? It's worship. Now, they came to worship, right? But because of the reading and the preaching of God's word, it led to more worship, fuller and richer worship. Why? Because they had come to know their God that much better. And that is true for us as well. We cannot worship God in ignorance. We cannot not know the God in whom we say that we worship. It would be similar to me saying, I I love my wife. And you follow up with a question, well, why do you love her? What are the reasons that you love her? And if I couldn't give you reasons, or if I told you, well, that's not really that important, or if it's just really all about my feelings, you would say that is a shallow love at best. But if you'd ask that question, why do I love my wife, I should say to you, well, let me number the ways. Let me tell you the reason why. Then you would know that there is a depth of love. The same is true in our worship. Yes, we should have these feelings, but those feelings should come out of and come forth with the increase of knowledge, the increase of the perfection and the beauty of our God. And when doing so, how can we not worship? when we realize that we are just beginning to scratch the surface, as it were. That God is so much more great, so much more glorious, that we are filled with awe and worth-ship because he is worthy. This truth, properly understood, must impact us and lead us to worship. And it must not only impact our minds, but it must impact our hearts. It must go through our ears. It must be understood by our minds, but it must make our way to our hearts. They say that the farthest distance in the world is between the head and the heart, and that is true. And yet, that is exactly the route it must take if we are to rightly understand the Word of God. And yet, that road, we can speak of it as such, is fraught with many traps and many snares. Jesus' parable of the soil would teach us that, that there is much in this life and even in our own self that would want to choke it out, would want to have it wither, would not want it to to grow and to sprout and to have root and to have fruit in our life. And yet, the point of that parable is that the word must make its way to our heart. It must find good soil, a good heart that has been prepared by the Spirit of God so that it would bear much fruit. That is the point of Jesus' parable. And for that fruit to bear in our life, it must impact our hearts. And that is what we see with this reading of God's Word in Nehemiah's day. And 
verse 9, it says that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They wept because the word brought conviction. And the word can do that, can it? The word can pierce and it can penetrate, oftentimes in uncomfortable ways. But it allows us to deal honestly with ourselves and to deal honestly with the state of mankind. And I want to propose to you that no other religion, no other philosophy does that or can do that. Why? Because they can't deal honestly with themselves because they have no answer. They have no solution to the depravity of man. And so what do they try to do? They, they try to cover it up or they try to gloss over it. They try to say that, well, we are really at heart all good or that you just haven't really realized your goodness yet. Or if they say there is a problem, they'll always say that the problem is somewhere out there, but they will never say the problem is here. But we as Christians can say, no, the problem is with us. It's in our hearts. It's in our lives. No, we are the wretches. But in our wretchedness, there is an answer. And it's the sweetest answer in the world, isn't it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When you understand the the sweetness of Christ, his love, his mercy, and his grace, how can that not impact your hearts? If you understand your sinfulness and your own depravity, then it must, it absolutely must. And yes, we must respond with feelings and we must respond with emotions. Through it, there should be joy, true joy. And that's what Ezra and the Levites had to say. Yes, it's right for you to weep. Yes, it's right for you to be convicted. But also understand that there is another emotion. That other emotion is joy because God has done something about your sin. He has wiped it away. It is far from you as the east is from the west. And In it, you understand the joy that is ours in Christ, the joy that is ours in the gospel. And that is why the Levites can say in verse 10 that the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where true joy is, isn't there? And we as Christians should be the most joyful of all people. The world longs for such joy. And we have it in Christ. And so the reading and the preaching brings us back to that joy again and again and again. And we need it, don't we? Because so often we go out in the world and we struggle with the the sinfulness of the world and our own sinfulness and, and our minds get distracted and we put our hope on other things that fall and fail. And so once again, we have our minds and our hearts placed upon Christ every week and we are reminded, no, that's where my joy is. But the joy of the Lord, the joy of Christ is my strength. And so we see here this reaction. Hearts and minds were changed and that's where it must begin. It must impact us internally before it ever impacts us externally. If we're just affected 
externally, if we just change our behaviors, our actions, but our hearts aren't changed, that's going to be short-lived, won't it? But if there's a changed heart, if there's a changed mind, then there will be a changed life. That will be the result. That will be the path. And we see that. Well, second, we see the affection for the reading and the preaching of God's word. How do you know when the word has impacted your heart and your mind and your life? Well, it's because you can't get enough of it. Again, look at our passage this morning. In verses 1 through 12, as I mentioned, this all happened on the first day of the seventh month. But we read these words in verse 13, on the second day. So in other words, the the very next day, what took place? Well, it says the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together with Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. What did they do? They gathered. What did they want to do? They wanted to study the word. And they wanted to study it more. As I said the day before, they had looked at it and heard it for about five to six other hours. And yet they didn't say, okay, I think we're good. I think we're good for today. We're probably good for a week. We might even be good for at least a month or maybe even a year. We've checked that box. Now the very next day they said, let's do that again. And that's when you know that revival, true revival has broken out. And the people of God are saying, we need more. We have a desire for more. We want to learn more. We want to worship more. We want to know more. And isn't that what Jesus says should happen? Doesn't Jesus say, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice he doesn't say, for they shall be satiated. No, they shall be satisfied. You can never get enough. It's kind of like when you eat a good meal. You don't say the next day, well, I'm, I'm probably good for a week. Now, if you have leftovers, you say, I think I'll take some more of that. Because that was so good, that was so enjoyable. And the same thing happens with the preaching and reading of God's word. You can never get enough. It satisfies, but you always want more of that satisfaction. There were many years that John Calvin preached every day. Why? Because the people in Geneva had never heard the truth read and preached like that. So they were saying, we want this every day. Now, I don't know what your pastors would do if you came to us and told us that you wanted it every day. That would probably be something we're not ready for, but what a blessed problem to, to have. How the people say, pastor, preacher, we, we need more, not less. Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep. The implications are that Jesus' sheep are always hungry, and they can only be fed and only be satisfied with God's word. There's an affection there, a growing affection. Third, there's a connection through the reading and preaching of the word of God. Notice that the heads of the houses of all the people, along with the Levites and the priests and the leaders of Israel, gathered around Ezra. And you might think, who is this 
Ezra guy, that all of the leaders, all of the people that would be the, the who's who in Israel come to gather around, to, to hear from him, to sit under his teaching, to sit under his leadership. Why was it? Was it because he had a dynamic personality? Was it because he had charming good looks? Is it because he had witty humor? In other words, was he a Danny Myers? That's what we want to know. No, we don't read any of that. They gathered around this man. Why? Because he had the book. Because they wanted to hear. And they wanted to learn. And because he taught them what it said. And you think about the people that have had the greatest impact on your life. It was not because you had a lot of things in common. It's probably because they taught you something of God and of God's word. I know that is true in my own life. I think of my own father, for example, and the spiritual impact that he has made for his faithfulness of loving my mother for 50 years, his faithfulness to the gospel and to ministry. And he continues to, even though he's retired, to persevere in the ministry. Praise God for that. I think of Pastor David Stark in Redding, California, who first introduced me to Presbyterianism and to the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's the one that married my, my wife and I and the impact that he made. I think of Carl Robbins in Greenville, South Carolina, who I got to see two weeks ago at General Assembly. And he had his son with him. His son is now also a PCA pastor. And I told his son when I grow up, I want to be a Carl Robbins because of the impact that he made, humanly speaking. I have very little in common with these men, and yet we have the greatest thing in common. Through their life and through their example and through their ministry, there was not only a connection made with them, there was a greater connection made with our God. And that is what is invaluable, isn't it? And for it, I'll be eternally grateful. And I praise God that by his grace, I'm able to do the same in a small way. I'm amazed that I still get requests from kids in my youth group almost a decade ago now that, that want me to marry them. I have two of them this fall. I tell you, it wasn't because of the, the games or because of the trips that we went on. If anything, I was the lamest youth pastor there was and ever will be. But I hope that it was because of the connection that was made, us together, but more importantly, them with Christ, that they would invite me to have a front row seat to their greatest, one of the greatest days of their life. I praise God for it. And I'm sure you can think of those in your life as well that you're so thankful for, you're so grateful for. You praise God for those people. Why? Because they helped you to know your God better. And it was because they knew the word and they taught you the word. Ladies, let me speak to the men here. Men, you see that the heads of the houses gathered together to study the word of God. Why? Because these men 
saw it as their responsibility to know and study the word of God. Why? So that they could make a better impact upon those under them. Yes, under their leadership, but most importantly, those in their home. I've said it before and I will say it again as husbands, as fathers go, so goes the home. It's not to diminish the impact of the ladies as mothers and as wives. There is a profound influence, but men, you are called by God to set the spiritual temperature of your home. And so men, the greatest connection that you can have with your kids is not by taking them to Disney or coaching their t-ball or being buddy-buddy with them. No, the greatest and most impactful and eternal thing that you can do is have them to see Christ in you. The fervency and love that you have for him. That's, I tell you, that love. Would you have that love to be greater even than your love for them? And the same goes with your wife. A few weeks ago, I told you of this Canadian pastor that went to prison. And I was struck by the words of his wife while he was in prison. She wrote this. One thing has come up both in my own mind and in questions of others that I've received is how, that is his, her husband, how can his actions serve to shepherd his family and church? Some have argued that he is actually being unfaithful since he is now prevented from being with any of us. She says, I've wrestled with this. How is this taking care of us? How is this shepherding us? She goes on to say, this, of course, is not a situation we'd wish upon anyone, but it shows to me, my children, and our church family is that Christ is worthy of our full devotion. The throne in his heart doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. And that's what we need most, even more than him being here with us. You hear what she said? That's what we need most. And that is right. That is a true testimony. And men, that is where the impact is made. It's not by being perfect. We are far from it. It's in that humble walking with the Lord and saying to our wife, it's saying to our children, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what takes place. Those are the connections that can be made. It's where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and it blends a group as diverse as this together. I take great joy, as I did last Sunday in the, the picnic, to see all of you enjoying being with one another. And you might ask the question, well, what is it that we have in common? Humanly speaking, not much other than the greatest thing that we can have in common, which is Christ, and praise God for that. We see this connection to God and one another because of the reading and preaching of God's word. We all sit underneath this word, and it unites us to God, and it unites us to one another. Well, fourth, there is an application of the reading and preaching of the word. Notice in this study of the word of God, verse 14, they found that it was written that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths 
during the feast of the seventh month. And you could read about this in Leviticus 23. It's the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths, as it's called. And it's essentially what it says here, that they were to make these booths, make these tents out of tree limbs, and they were to go out and dwell in it for seven days. It was essentially a corporate camping trip. Those of you that like camping, this might be your biblical rationale to do what you do. Those of you that don't like camping, well, you can praise God that we're in the new covenant and you don't have to do this anymore. But what was the purpose? Why did they do this? Well, Leviticus tells us, it says in Leviticus 23, verse 43, that your generation may know that I made the people of God dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. It was a reminder that for 40 years, the people of God were in the wilderness, and they had little shacks, they had little shanties like this, but nothing more. They had nothing but God. They were fully dependent and fully reliant upon him. And so this festival would have them to remember this, to commemorate this, and would have them to leave their homes and to live under these frail dwellings as a reminder that still the Lord is all that we have. We're completely dependent upon him. And you might read this and think that is a bit strange, and perhaps it is, but there's some lessons for us to learn from what they do. In other words, there is applications to be made to us because of their application of God's word and and carrying out this feast, this festival. First, it demonstrates to us their depth of study. This was found in Leviticus. If you've ever read Leviticus, then you know that they were reading from all of the law. This wasn't just a study from the book of John or the book of Romans. I understand those weren't written yet, but you get the point. This was from the whole counsel of God. And secondly, and probably more importantly, not only they read it, but they did it. And in fact, it says in verse 17 that this had not been done since the days of Yeshua, which is another spelling for Joshua. This had not been done since the days of Joshua. In other words, this hadn't been done for a long, long time. They could have easily said, well, we can just kind of skip that. That part's not very important or relevant to us. No, they said, the Lord said it. Therefore, we must do it. And in fact, all the people did it, as we read in verse 16. Let me ask you this morning, does the word of God have the same application on your life? Do we say, if the Lord said it, then by God's grace, I will do it? Is that our attitude? Even if what the Lord says seems utterly strange, and absolutely absurd. Could you imagine what their enemies outside of the wall thought? What are they doing? They are building tents on their roof and in their courtyard. 
Why are they doing that? I don't know. I think they've gone mad. And the world won't understand, will it? Not then, not now, not ever. They won't understand why you live in the manner that you do. Why do you spend your Sundays at church? Why do you not engage in certain activities or certain talk? Why would you tithe of your money and a thousand other things that seem absolutely absurd and strange? The question is, are we willing to to be strange for the sake of Christ? Even worse, are we willing to be ostracized and persecuted for Christ? Why would we do such a thing? Because the Lord told us to do it. The Lord told us to believe it. And his word is always that which is good for us. We must never forget that. We need Christ. We need Christ's word more than we need the the praise and the promotion and the prestige of this world and of others. But third, there's another lesson that can be taught to us, another application from their application of God's word. And I think it's taught to us in Psalm 90. If you remember Psalm 90, Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It's the only psalm that was written by Moses. And so it would have been very familiar to those in Nehemiah's day. And we believe that it was very strategically placed in the Psalter. In other words, someone didn't just throw up all the psalms and whatever order they landed in, that's the order that we have in the Psalter. No, they were strategically placed, and this one was placed at the beginning of book four, and most believe that Ezra was the one that arranged the Psalms and the Psalter. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, what message did Ezra want to be prominent in the Psalms for his people in their day, as well as for us today? Well, how does Psalm 90 begin? Lord, you, you have been our dwelling place. In all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting, everlasting, you are God. That was the message that Moses wanted the people to know as they went through the wilderness. Lord, you are our dwelling place, not the land, not where we're going, not anything earthly, only you and you alone. And therefore, Moses says in verse 12, therefore, teach us to number our day, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. You hear it, don't you? The people during Nehemiah's day and us today are saying we are as frail and flimsy as these little stick and leave shanties. Probably a a good wind would have blown them down. That's like our life, isn't it? But Lord, you are the one that is everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. Therefore, you are to be our dwelling place. Beloved, as we think about the reading and preaching of God's word, that is the lesson, isn't it? That our lives are, are but a blip on the radar. Here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, Moses says that in that psalm, that we are like the grass that springs up and then withers away. 
that doesn't mean that our lives are meaningless. But it does mean that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. Therefore, with the, the days that we have, knowing that they are from God, let us live them for God. Why? Because he has not left us without his way. He hasn't left us without his witness. He has given us his word. He has given us the word, which is Christ, and that is sufficient. Why? Because, Lord, you are our dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we dwell secure this day and for all of eternity in God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit day by day and week by week through the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Praise God for it. Let us carry on, therefore, with great and even greater confidence in God's word until we see the word face to face. Would the Lord find us faithful? Pray with me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the impact it makes upon our hearts and upon our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would bring these scriptures alive to us. Would we have the same revival in our land as there was in the time of Israel with the reading and preaching of your word, would it have that same impact upon our minds and upon our hearts and therefore on our lives and the way that we live and the way that we act. Lord, we pray you'd help us in it. Would you begin with us, O Lord? Would your spirit have his way with us? Would we, Lord, meditate and think upon and have us live out these words that are everlasting? And would it point us to you as the everlasting and eternal God, our true hope and joy in this life and in the next? Lord, we pray this because of Christ, the true word. Amen.